the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Factors not available in all The following program is sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy reminds us that God is always up to something good. If your circumstances find you in God, you can be sure that you'll find God in your circumstances. I don't know what circumstances are swamping you, surrounding you, and threatening to swallow you to a point where you're fearful, concerned, you're anxious. Please know He's ahead of your circumstances. He's orchestrating and superintending in all of this. Welcome to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. As you prepare for the Christmas holidays, you might not be expecting to hear a message about the Last Supper, but that's where we find ourselves in our Gospel of Mark series. And Philip wants us to consider all the preparations made to bring God's redemptive plan to pass, culminating in Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the reason we can proclaim joy to the world this Christmas. Let's go to today's message now. Here's Philip DeCourcy. The great English preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, liked to say of his preaching, and others said of his preaching, that wherever he was in a text of Scripture, he would immediately make a beeline for the cross. I think if you were to listen to him or read him, you would hear this and you would see this, that if he was in the Old Testament, he would head cross-country to the New Testament as soon as possible. And when he got to the New Testament, if he found himself preaching on the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, it wouldn't be long before he would drive straight ahead, not stopping till he got to the cross and the death of the Lord Jesus. Spurgeon made a beeline for the cross wherever he was in the Bible. Because for Spurgeon, the Bible was about Jesus. It's one unified story, although it unfolds in different epics and installments. And if it is about Jesus, then it's about his death. Because Jesus appeared at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The cross of Calvary was Spurgeon's theology. And if it was anything within his theology, it was everything within his theology. He would agree with Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, who said, No theology is genuinely Christian which does not arise from and focus on the cross. In fact, Spurgeon anticipated his own death in talking to the students of Spurgeon's college in London, and he said this one day to them, I would like to rise from my bed during the last five minutes of my life to bear witness to the divine sacrifice and the sin-atoning blood. You see, Spurgeon understood 
that the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was the key to opening the gates of heaven for him. So in the last five minutes of his life, he wants to testify to the divine sacrifice and the sin-atoning blood. Spurgeon made a beeline for the cross because the cross is the crux of Christianity. Any true minister of the gospel wants to bear witness to the divine sacrifice. Paul said to the Corinthians, I knew nothing among you save Jesus and him crucified. Paul said to the Galatians, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the cross. Because every true minister of the gospel wants to rise up throughout their life and in the last five minutes of their life and bear testimony to the divine sacrifice. And such is the case with Mark, a true minister of the gospel, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, a follower of the Master. Because I would say this of Mark, he from the moment he starts to write this gospel, is making a beeline for the cross. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Mark has been in a hurry. I mean, one of his favorite words is immediately. He doesn't spend as much time on the details of certain events in Jesus' life like Matthew does, like Luke does, and like John does. In fact, he skips over the birth of Jesus altogether. What's your rush? Why are you in a hurry, Mark? I want to get to the cross. I think he would say. I'm making a beeline for the cross. Mark was in a hurry to get to the cross because that's a center and it is the crux of Christianity. Can I make that argument? I think I can. As early as Mark 3, he's introduced the fact that the religious leaders are gunning for Jesus Christ and want to kill him. When you get to Mark 8, 9, and 10, he records for us three predictions by the Lord Jesus himself about his impending death. By the time you get to chapter 11, which is in the last third of the book, he's already introducing the last week in Jesus' life with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And interestingly, here we are in the last five chapters of Mark's gospel, and all of a sudden he has put the brakes on. I mean, this guy's been in a hurry from the moment he took his pen up. Immediately, immediately, let's keep moving. Got to get to the cross. He's in a hurry to get to the cross. And that's where we're at here in Mark 14, because he's introducing to us the events will lead to Jesus' arrest, trial, and death. And he's going to show Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Supper, which is an explanation of his death. He's predicted it, but now he's explaining it the nature of it. It's sacrificial and substitutionary and atoning in nature. And so I think Derek Tidball is right when he says that Mark's gospel is a passion narrative with a long introduction. So let's come to our text, Mark 14, verses 12 through 31. It's part of Mark's straightforward apology for the cross. It's picking up the theme of Mark 14 and verse 8, where Jesus' death has been introduced with Mary's anointing of him in anticipation of his burial. It explains the nature of his death because Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and that's significant because he's going to become our Passover according to 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. 
We have given the events, as I've said, leading up to the crucifixion. And I think also one of the purposes of, of this section is to draw a contrast between Jesus, Judas, and the disciples. Because there's a kind of a Markian sandwich going on here again, where he begins by talking about the betrayal of Judas. He'll go on to talk about the cowardice of the disciples and the spiritual belly flop of Peter in his collapse and failure. And right in the middle of it, Jesus tells us what he's about to do. He's about to give his life a ransom for many. He's about to fulfill the Father's will. His life is on course, and his faithfulness is contrasted to Judas's betrayal and the disciples' faithlessness. So, kind of gives you a sense of what we're dealing with. We never want to isolate the text from the context. Now, several things I want us to see. Number one, what I call the preparation. That's verses 12 through 16. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? This is late afternoon when the Passover lamb is slaughtered. And now preparation must be made for late evening, where they will sit down like thousands and thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. You know what the Passover is. It's a feast and a festival within the Jewish calendar, taking them back to their 4th of July experience when God delivered them from bondage in Egypt. And that came through eventually the visiting angel of death, and the Israelites were delivered by the blood of an innocent lamb that was shed and then splattered over their door. And when the angel came by and saw the blood, he passed on. And that became the last straw. Pharaoh says, get out of here. And they haven't time to bake bread. They grab what they can, and they're out of Egypt. And each succeeding generation remembers that seminal moment. That's where we're at. And so like good Jews, the Lord Jesus and his disciples are making preparation for that meal. And they have nowhere to eat yet. They've got the lamb, they've got the stuff that they need for the Passover meal. But what about a location? That's the question the disciples ask, and Jesus has an answer. Verse 13, he sent two of them out, said to them, go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And the disciples did what he said, and they encountered what Jesus predicted, and they got the room. They prepared the Passover. Look at verse 17. And in the evening, Jesus came with the twelve. So the clock's ticking. We're moving from Thursday afternoon to Thursday evening, bumping up against the beginning of Friday, which is nightfall, because a Jewish day is nightfall to nightfall. But here's the point I want to underscore, not to get lost in the chronology, the timetable, and the Jewish calendar. It's this little word that describes the room. He will show you, verse 15, a large upper room furnished and prepared. That's where I get my first thought from, the preparation. Okay? Verse 12, the disciples wanted to know, where do we go and prepare the meal? Jesus said, there'll be an upper room that a man will give to you, and it will be furnished and prepared. The preparation. Now, I'm not going to get lost. When Jesus tells his disciples this, 
is this a case of something he had prearranged? Is this just natural planning? You know, there was a man waiting for them, and the man who owned the house knew Jesus, and all of this was kind of set up. That would make it natural, and, and that's a possibility. But I think it's more supernatural. And then Jesus is seeing that which, you know, he has at this moment had no hand in planning. The whole idea of them just, you know, surreptitiously bumping into a man who's carrying a pitcher of water, which was an unusual thing in that day because the women usually carried the water, not the men. And then they follow him into a house and they ask the question the teacher has asked for the room and the room is provided. Natural, supernatural, that's a good discussion. We don't need to fight over it or fall out over it. Either way, the thing is, this is prepared and planned. Now you say, okay, pastor, that's good. Anything to help me live my life? Yeah. Here's what it is. Jesus was in complete control of the circumstances. As his approaching death unfolds, I want you to make sure you do not see Jesus in any way as a victim of the circumstances. Not that he wasn't a victim of Judas's betrayal and the wickedness of the Jewish leaders. I'm not saying that. But just know this. These circumstances didn't overtake Jesus. It's not like he didn't see this coming. It's not like he's not embracing this as part of the Father's will. The upper room was prepared. It was furnished. Because Jesus has set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. In fact, he will predict the betrayal of Judas. He will predict the cowardice of the disciples. And he will predict the absolute failure and flop of Peter. He's in total charge of this. In fact, look at verse 28. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Not only does he know that they need a room and provision has been made, either naturally or supernaturally for that, he knows that before long, Judas will come and betray him with a kiss, with the best of intentions. Nevertheless, his disciples will fail the test and flee in fear. He'll be put to the scourging and the suffering of the cross. He will die. He will be buried in a borrowed tomb, and he will rise. And then tuck this away, because we've got to come back to this before we're done. And on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of their cowardice, failure, and fear, he'll meet them, he'll reinflate them, he will recommission them, he will restore them, and will be off to the Great Commission. He's in charge. He's orchestrating and superintending in all of this. And that, to me, is encouraging. That's the pastoral and practical point. We have a Lord and Savior who's Lord over His circumstances and our circumstances. I've said before and I say it again, if your circumstances find you in God, you can be sure that you'll find God in your circumstances. God is working all things after the counsel of His own will. Ephesians 1.11, and He's working all things together for good. Romans 8.28. I want to tell you, He is not beneath and under the circumstances. He is over the circumstances and ahead of anything that's coming. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's barreling towards you and scaring the dickens out of you. I don't know what circumstances are swamping you, surrounding you, and threatening to swallow you to a point where you're fearful, you know, you're concerned, you're anxious. You're scrambling to know God's will. You're trying to get your head around God is good, but this doesn't look good. Please know He's ahead of your circumstances. 
He's already prepared for tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. Look at the words of the Lord Jesus here in verse 28. I read them. I will go before you. See, he's ahead of the events. He's leading the events. He's superintending his will over the events. Scripture is being fulfilled. The will of the Father is being done. Jesus, indeed, is not under the circumstances, but over the circumstances. We need a room, Lord, to prepare the meal. Okay, go into the city. You'll see a guy with a water pot in his head. Follow him into the house. Then ask the master of the house for a room. He'll give you the room, and you know what? You'll find it furnished and prepared. John 10, when he puts forth the sheep, he goes before them. He's that kind of shepherd. He is that to them here in Mark 14, and he is that to us. In fact, I did a message called All Things Have Been Prepared. And I went to Psalm 23, verse 5, since we're talking about a shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 5, He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil, and our cup overflows. Here's the point. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Now, plenty of commentators will argue there's a change of metaphor. We've gone from the outdoors to the indoors. It's no longer the shepherd and the sheep. It's the host and the guest. Now you're in the house, and the table's being spread, and the china's out, and the coffee's being poured, and everybody's happy. Great. Could be true. I like to think it's still the shepherd and the sheep, because the word table there is used in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel for table land, high ground. And the shepherd will sometimes take the sheep into a field on a higher elevation for better grazing. And here's what I've read in my research when I did Psalm 23. He will go into that field before the sheep. And he will take his staff and he'll prepare the field, the table, the place where the sheep are going to eat. And he'll dig up poison plants with the end of his staff. He'll toot them on the top of rocks to dry out and weather so the sheep don't eat them and poison them. There are some historical notes that shepherds have lost up to 100 or 200 sheep who have eaten poisonous plants. So he does that. He prepares the table in the presence of their enemies. The enemies might be snakes, vipers. And what the shepherd does, he takes his oil and he puts it around the mouth of the viper nest. Snakes don't like the oil and they tend to stay in the viper nest while the sheep are eating. So the sheep are protected as they eat on the table prepared. Or you anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. Sometimes the picture is of the shepherd taking oil and rubbing it into the snout or the nose of the sheep as a bug repellent. Everything's being prepared. You want to eat? Well, I prepared you a picnic table and the flies aren't going to bug you. Sounds good to me, by the way, doesn't it? That's the picture. And it's the picture of a God who prepares what his people need ahead of time. That's the God you worship. That's the God who's being introduced to us here. I know it's not the heart of this passage, but pastorally, I think it's so encouraging. The preparation. When he puts forth his sheep, he goes before them. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He takes care of it. Don't be overly anxious. Do what you need to do. Whatever your responsibility is, do it. But when life piles up and the issues seem to be overwhelming, realize God's got a solution. In fact, quick story. When I was reading that about this upper room, that according to the text is furnished and prepared, verse 15, I thought about a time in June's life and my life 
We had just got married, and we were looking an apartment. And every young couple needs that. I was still at Bible College. I had one year to go at the Irish Baptist College. She had finished her two years at the Whitfield College of the Bible. She was married. She was willing to stay at home. We were getting ready for that and my last year at seminary in Northern Ireland. And we had our eye on one of our friend's apartments because he was about to move out, him and his wife. And they were in a great little area called Mervyn Garden Village, which means nothing to you. But as the name suggests, it's actually a pretty little area, Merville Garden Village. And everybody wanted to get in there. And there was houses and there were certain flats or apartments, as you call them here. And we were hoping to get into our friend's flat. He was moving out. His name was Dana. He was a friend of mine from childhood. And he said, you know what, go down to the office and tell them we're moving out and we'd love you to become the tenants. And hopefully they'll see that as a, you know, a nice transition and it'll be smooth. And we went down and we find out there was a waiting list the length of our arm for those little flats and apartments, and rightly so. And the guy was very gracious. He said, we'd love to be able to do that. I I understand your friend offering it to you, but we can't do that. There's people on a list. You know what, you got to get to the back of the line. I kind of got a bit disappointed with that. And, you know, we'd kind of built our, ourselves up a little. It'd be great if we can get into Donna's flat. So I shared that with Donna a couple of nights later at the, our Bible study at our church and kind of shared it with my head down and in kind of, you know, a, a lower voice, you know, conveying disappointment. And, you know, he, he looked at me and said, don't give up. You know, I, he says, I believe God's got this for you. You know, you're his servant. You need this. You're at Bible college. You know, I think God's got this for you. Kind of reading between the lines, oh, ye of little faith. So we left it and, and we're going, okay. I'm going, yeah. I mean, we went down to the office and I'm doubting Thomas as soon as the things, uh, you know. Three weeks later, he calls us and he says, the flat's yours. And I go, what do you mean? Well, he says, I'll tell you a funny story. He said, I just got a call a couple of days ago from our landlord. And typically, the old way was those flats were kind of almost, I, I don't know if they were even carpeted, but there was no furniture, washer, and stuff like that. And he said, they've got a new policy now where they're trying to, if we have upgraded the carpets or we have bought some furniture, they want to buy some of the furniture off. They want them to be kind of half furnished and carpeted. They think, you know, that's just a better way to go. They can raise the rent a little bit, and it's just a better deal for the person coming in. And so we got a call saying, you know what, Mr. Armstrong, we know you're moving out. Would you be willing to sell us your carpet, washing machine, and your sofa, and a couple of your beds. And being the good Christian he was, he said, no. No, unless you give it to my friend Philip. Well, you know, what were they to do? They wanted his stuff. And so we got the apartment prepared and furnished within the providence of God. Yeah, you know, does that happen every week? No, but it happens enough in our lives to remind us God's ahead of us. Nothing catches God off guard. He's preparing for us what will come. You're listening to Know the Truth in a message from Philip DeCourcy titled, There Will Be Blood. It's part of our Essential Jesus series in the Gospel of Mark. And you can look for the complete study on our website at ktt.org. Well, it's hard to believe we're coming up to Christmas and the end of the year, but as you finish up last-minute shopping and holiday preparations, we hope you'll remember a generous year-end donation to Know the Truth. Now, this past year, we significantly expanded our radio station platform to reach more people with the gospel. It was an act of faith to take on a $300,000 commitment, but we're already seeing the fruit. In Atlanta, Georgia, where Know the Truth now airs, 
We heard from Catherine who wrote, I have the privilege of being involved in a jail ministry through our church. Every Tuesday on my way to the jail facility, yours is the sermon I hear on the radio. I cannot tell you the number of times your sermons have tied into what I had prepared for the ladies that night. I love watching God work in confirming the truths that have been presented for me to share. I'm so blessed by your broadcasts. I will continue to pray for your ministry as it is so vital for God's people to continue to share the gospel. Well, Catherine, thank you for that powerful letter explaining how these broadcasts reach beyond the radio and the web. And this month, we need your gifts more than ever to continue reaching people with bold, clear, and convicting teaching. Make your most generous donation today when you call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And when you give, we'll send you a book designed to kick off your new year, the ESV Daily Devotional New Testament. Ask for it when you give today. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in Mark chapter 14. That's Tuesday on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Mike Lindell, inventor of My Pillow. My employees and I would like to thank you for making My Pillow possible. Years ago, when I invented My Pillow, I thought I was the only one out there with problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat, I'd flip-flop all night, or wake up with a sore neck or headache. So that's why I invented My Pillow. You can adjust My Pillow's patented fill to your exact individual needs to help you get to sleep faster and stay there longer to get the quality sleep you need. I back it with my 10-year warranty and my 60-day money-back guarantee. And now to thank you, I'm bringing back my best offer ever. Buy one of my my pillows and get another one absolutely free. Purchase the best pillow you will ever own today. Call 800-517-3636 or go to MyPillow.com. Use the promo code WAVA. Notice the difference a good night's sleep can make. Take advantage of the buy one, get one free offer. Call 800-517-3636 or go to MyPillow.com. Use the promo code WAVA. If you're over 40. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.